You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast with a very special gift for my listeners this holiday season. While my last new show of 2023 on Delmonico's went live last week, this week we are offering an episode from the Bowery Boys archive to round out our series of tie-in shows to HBO's The Gilded Age. The character of Emily Roebling and the story of how she worked to complete construction on the Brooklyn Bridge in the face of her husband's illness was a fascinating plotline in season two. In this episode, Greg and Tom share the entire story of the Roebling family, John, his son Washington, and his wife Emily, as they all contributed to create one of the greatest engineering feats of the 19th century. And as an extra special treat, Greg and Tom are joined by Chris Roebling, Washington and Emily's great-great-grandson, who keeps their legacy alive to this day. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're paying a visit to one of the great icons of New York City, the East River Bridge, otherwise known as the Brooklyn Bridge. But here's a little riddle for you. Today's show is not strictly about the Brooklyn Bridge, which took more than 13 years to complete and opened 140 years ago on May 24th, 1883. A generation of New Yorkers and Brooklynites grew up watching its towers slowly rise over the East River and its suspension cables span out to support a road which would link the two great cities. Thousands of people were employed in some way during its construction, and more than two dozen people died and many others were injured while building it. The bridge represented the rise of a great metropolitan area and signaled that New York was about to become one of the world's greatest cities. But on today's show, we're going to look at the story from a new angle. We're going to look at the Brooklyn Bridge as a kind of family tree. There's a 1951 plaque upon the bridge, which reads, The Builders of the Bridge, dedicated to the memory of Emily Warren Roebling, whose faith and courage helped her stricken husband, Colonel Washington A. Roebling, complete the construction of this bridge from the plans of his father, John A. Roebling, who gave his life to the bridge. The bridge is not only a symbol of the American Gilded Age, it's a monument to the genius, perseverance, and oversight of a family. The story of this New York icon is different from others that we've told because the Roebling story is different. It's marked by two terrible events that befell John and then later Washington Roebling. Today's show will be a series of three mini-biographies of three family members, John, Washington, and Emily. And through their stories, we'll watch as the Brooklyn Bridge is designed, built, and then opened in 1883. 
Ah, uh, but Greg, it is not just three stories. It's actually four today because later in the show, we'll sit down and talk with an actual Roblane. Chris Roblane, the great-great-grandson of Washington and Emily Roblane. Chris keeps his family's legacy alive with walking tours that he gives of the bridge, and he's got a really fascinating story himself. We'll speak with him about his family and, you know, what it's like to walk over the Brooklyn Bridge and think, hey, my family built this. We'll get to that at the end of the show. But first, of course, let's start with John's story. John Roblane, father of Washington Roblane, father-in-law of Emily, and great-great-grandfather of Chris Roblane. We're beginning the story today in the year 1806 in Mulhausen, Prussia. That's today's Germany, where Johann Roebling, that's <laughs> R-O with an umlaut B, Johann was born to Polycarp. His father's name was Polycarp, who owned a tobacco shop, and his mom, Frederica. Now, in his teens, Johann studied in Berlin to become an engineer, and before he was 20 years old, he worked for the government in rebuilding roads and bridges, which had been devastated during the Napoleonic Wars. Wow. Okay, so his his course toward the Brooklyn Bridge was basically set here during his youth. I mean, mm -hmm. he was obviously incredibly bright. I'm sure that Polycarp was very proud. It sounds like he had bridge building in his DNA. And not just any kind of bridge, Tom, but specifically suspension bridges, of which there are many types, mm -hmm. but the kind that we'll be focusing on in today's show involves a roadway hung upon suspenders or towers using some sort of cable, okay? Mm -hmm. Before Johann's time, these cables were made mostly out of ropes or chains. Okay. There were already simple suspension bridges, even in the United States, even before Johann was born. So did Roebling then build any suspension bridges while he was still living in Germany? He certainly would have loved to. Uh, he was young and talented, and also he was young and unconnected, with no power inside governmental bureaucracy to even get any kind of significant assignment. Meanwhile, less talented engineers were constructing bridges, which would end up collapsing or falling apart quickly. Johann was very confident in his abilities. He would wince as he visited bridges throughout the country, shocked by shoddy and inefficient designs. So frustrated by all this, he eventually decides to emigrate to the United States in 1831. 1831, making him one of thousands of Germans who would immigrate to the United States in the 1830s. Yeah, by Roebling's time, many thousands of Germans had already arrived in the United States. America was seen as an ideal alternative for many hindered by war and the lack of opportunities here. Many who came from this area were actually well-educated and prosperous, and Roebling was no different. But he came to the United States in 1831 not to build bridges at first, but to build a utopian farming community, which, you know, for that moment at least, sounded very exciting to him. 
Whoa. Okay, wait. A utopian farming community. This <laughs> yes. story has already taken kind of a surprising turn. So when he arrived in 1831, he was really something of a pioneer. Like literally a horse and wagon setting up a farm style pioneer. The purest form. Yes. Little house on the prairie. <laughs> and he would build many little houses. But alas, this is not the romantic experience that you might be envisioning. Long story short, his optimism fell away with the realities of actually organizing such a venture. He fell out with his utopian collaborator, John Etzler, and then with his brother Carl, he took his remaining followers, Johann did, wandering through Pennsylvania until they finally purchased acreage outside of Pittsburgh and formed the basis of today's community of Saxonburg. Wow. So today's Saxonburg in Butler County, Pennsylvania, was founded by the Roebling brothers in the 1830s. And it was here in 1837 that Johann Roebling officially became John Roebling. And now you'll never have to hear me announce an umlaut for the rest of the show. <laughs> or you can stop calling him Roebling. <laughs> but um, in that same year, John and his wife Johanna began a family with the birth of their first child, Washington Augustus Roebling. And it was also here in Saxonburg that John would start a business that would set the destiny for the entire Roebling family, the creation of wire rope. There would be no Brooklyn Bridge, of course, without it. I mean, nope. so many engineering marvels would not exist without it, which begs the question then, did John Roebling invent wire rope? Uh, no, wire rope does come to us in the 1830s and from Germany, but from another inventor. However, mm. Roebling would perfect it. Now, he got very bored with operating a farming community, as we've implied, so he promptly went back to engineering, working on various projects in Pennsylvania, including the Allegheny Portage Railroad, which required pulling rail cars up inclines. Mm. Now, after seeing how frail the hemp ropes were that were being used, Roebling eventually began producing wire rope in the backyard in Saxonburg, wire rope which was far stronger and sturdier. And wire rope which is made by weaving together many, many strands of metal mm -hmm. wire, today mostly steel, which then creates one incredibly strong and mostly, you know, infallible piece of rope. Of course, Weaving together strands of wire also requires a lot of space. I mean, you have to be able yeah. to stretch it all out. So how did he do that? Author Richard Haw describes Roebling's first rudimentary process here in his excellent biography on John Roebling called Engineering America. Quote, the process of making a single rope was slow and tedious, taking one or two very long days. John was a confident man, but it was unlikely he fully understood what he was doing with his makeshift rope walk or that he dreamed or envisioned where it would all lead. But laboring away in the meadow behind his home with a rather motley collection of unskilled friends and neighbors, John was creating not a business venture nor a single factory, but an entire industry, the American wire rope industry, unquote. And as the name Roebling became synonymous with wire rope, I'm assuming then that the business soon outgrew Saxonburg, Pennsylvania. 
he eventually moved the operation to Trenton, New Jersey, along with his growing family. And his wire rope operation would be one of Trenton's foundational industries. Of course, John Roebling himself was not actually at home all that much because he was off working on a variety of engineering projects in Ohio and Pennsylvania, most of which would use his wire rope and burnish the great name of Roebling. By the 1850s, John Roebling was basically one of the few guys in America that you called when you wanted to construct a bridge. This is interesting. His company wasn't just producing wire rope. It was Mm -hmm. also taking on engineering projects. He could oversee the construction of a bridge while at the same time producing one of the key materials needed in that project. He could produce the wire and the cables. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that range of services would serve them very well as a company for many decades. Now, I'm not going to get into all the bridges that he worked on, of course, but I may call out a personal favorite of mine. Aside, of course, from from the Brooklyn Bridge. Oh, sorry. Yes. Aside from the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, I guess I've actually walked over and fallen in love with two Roebling Bridges, Mm. actually. The Roebling Bridge, which sits over the Delaware River at the New York-Pennsylvania border, about 30 minutes west of Port Jervis, is the oldest existing suspension bridge in the United States, and one of four designed by Roebling to serve the Delaware and Hudson Canal, which transported coal to the Hudson River. Okay, today you can walk over it and just soak in all these absolutely stunning views of the valley, or you can drive over it in your car. But when it was completed in 1849, you floated barges full of coal over it. Mm. It's very modest compared to the Brooklyn Bridge, obviously, but it's a very fascinating historic landmark to this day. Are there any other Roebling bridges still standing from this period? There are a few, notably the bridge which linked together Cincinnati, Ohio, and Covington, Kentucky, over the Ohio River, today called the John A. Roebling Suspension Bridge. When it opened in 1866, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world. Wow. But I would say that the bridge that brought him the most acclaim during his life is one from a decade earlier and one that no longer stands, a suspension railroad bridge over the Niagara Falls, which began operation in 1855. Now, the reason it was so well known was its striking appearance over these beautiful falls and its unique design, which employed Egyptian motifs. Here was a bridge as something beautiful and colossal, linking the United States with Canada. According to the Buffalo Express upon its opening, quote, the opening of this mighty and magnificent structure, well worthy of being classed with the world's wonders, really forms an epoch in the history of the world. It unites with strong iron bands two countries to the intelligence and enterprise of whose inhabitants the bridge owes its existence and stands as a fitting monument, unquote. I should note by this time in the 1850s that his son Washington was working by his side. So how then did John Roebling eventually get to New York? You know, as a prominent businessman, he was very familiar with the cities of New York and Brooklyn through visits and business associates, and was even familiar, in particular, with the East River and the challenges of crossing it. 
namely by ferry services, which could be greatly hampered by river traffic and inclement weather. Yeah, especially during the winter when the river could just freeze and ferries weren't able to operate at all. Everything often stopped during the winter months. Now, back in 1847, he had already begun considering what a bridge over the East River would look like with a span that he designed over Blackwell's Island, not for vehicle traffic, but as an aqueduct to bring water from the Croton Aqueduct, which was just nearing completion at the time of Mm -hmm. his conceptual plans here in 1847. This would have brought water to Long Island and to the growing city of Brooklyn. Now, this aqueduct, you know, never got off the drawing board, obviously, but that kernel of an idea remained with him. So eventually, less than two decades later, in the 1860s, the cities of New York and Brooklyn, in this burst of infrastructural enthusiasm (laughs) after the Civil War, decided to proceed with a bridge project that would link these two great cities, an idea greatly encouraged by Roebling himself, of course, who was in regular correspondence with newspaper publishers and civic leaders. So this was a bit of self-promotion on his part. But if city leaders were already considering, you know, building a bridge and all of a sudden one of America's greatest engineers and bridge wire rope makers and cable makers starts badgering you about it and putting in his two cents, (laughs) Uh you know, he's going to get noticed. Yeah, and and so, thus, on April 16th, 1867, the state of New York passed, quote, an act to incorporate the New York Bridge Company for the purpose of constructing and maintaining a bridge over the East River between the cities of New York and Brooklyn. And just a few weeks later, John Roebling was officially named the chief engineer with an annual salary of $8,000 which is about $180,000 today. John sent his son Washington to Europe to study bridge design and construction while he finalized his proposal to the Board of Trustees, modestly writing, quote, The contemplated work, when constructed in accordance to my designs, will not only be the greatest bridge in existence, but it will be the great engineering work of the continent and of the age. Its most conspicuous features, the great towers, will serve as landmarks to the adjoining cities, and they will be entitled to be ranked as national monuments, unquote. Not modest, but true. (laughs) Prescient. That's the crazy part is actually it's true. It just seems very, very bold for him to say that (laughs) before it's even built. Well, but his designs that he made in the 1860s, I mean, those designs are nearly identical to the bridge that would open decades later. You, and you can also see hints, you know, of his past work, right, in this new bridge design. There's a little mm-hmm. bit of the Niagara Bridge. Um, there's quite a bit of the Cincinnati Bridge. Just look yeah. that one up. But this East River Bridge was just so much larger and more ambitious than anything that had been built yet. In every way, it was a masterpiece. To quote Richard Haw, John's design for the Brooklyn Bridge was the culmination of an admittedly uneven aesthetic development. None of the designs for his previous bridges were able to marry function and expression anywhere near so successfully, unquote. And of course, 
that bridge would eventually use steel wire from Roebling's Wire Rope Factory in Trenton, New Jersey. Unsurprisingly, of course, it took a couple of years to really get the funding together and for the project to sort of navigate the tangles, you know, of city bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, you know, that Boss Tweed and Tammany Hall were sort of right here in the mm-hmm. middle, mm-hmm. you know, like meddling around with their hands out. Got to grease those palms to get, you know, these kinds of projects off the ground during this period. But by June 28th, 1869, they were ready to start. And John and his son, Washington, were out surveying near the Fulton Ferry Terminal in the city of Brooklyn, and near the spot where that Brooklyn Tower was to be built. Suddenly, a boat came in, and tragedy struck. As his son later wrote, quote, It was while engaged in locating the position of the Brooklyn Tower that Mr. John A. Roebling met with a lamentable accident, the crushing of his right foot by the shock of a ferry boat against the fender rack of spring piles on which he was standing, unquote. The accident severed four of his five toes. Soon after, he contracted lockjaw, which we call tetanus today, which quickly paralyzes the body. He was in terrible pain for many weeks and unable to speak. Sadly, there was nothing anybody could do. On July 22, 1869, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle published this announcement. There is something truly affecting in the sad announcement we have to make today that John A. Roebling has died from the injuries received in the accident which befell him while surveying the approaches of the bridge. He lived not to see his work finished, or even actually begun. Not long since, before the accident, Mr. Roebling remarked to us that he had enough of money and of reputation, and that his son ought to build this Brooklyn Bridge was as competent as himself in all respects to design and supervise it. Little did we imagine then that the time was so near at hand when these words might be important to record as evidence that the loss the Brooklyn Bridge scheme had sustained in the death of Mr. Roebling, though great, is not wholly irreparable. And so the responsibility for the Brooklyn Bridge passed to his son, Washington. We'll get to Washington Roebling's life and the remarkable story of his wife, Emily, after this. So here we are in 1869, and Washington Roebling was 32 years old and had just inherited the largest engineering project of his time. A project that had been extensively planned by his father. But as that clip from the Daily Eagle indicates, no part of that bridge had actually been constructed during John's life. The bridge was nothing but plans at this stage of the game here. During Washington Roebling's long life, he often found himself in situations where he needed to correct you know, the official record, Mm -hmm. correct articles that had been written about the bridge. Articles that stated that his father, John Roebling, had, quote, built the Brooklyn Bridge. That confusion over who, who was responsible for the bridge goes all the way back 
to John's death in 1869. But to give John his credit, he was the bridge's mastermind. Absolutely, he was. Although Washington, of course, would have to make countless engineering decisions about the bridge's actual construction as it was going up. So the bridge is also Washington's. So let's now then back the story up and retell it from his perspective, from the perspective of Washington Roebling. I mentioned that Washington was born in 1837 back in the rural community of Saxonburg, Pennsylvania. Yes, and his childhood, by his own reports, was not an easy one. His father, John, in, in addition to being, you know, a renowned engineering genius, and, and he was noted publicly for his kindness and his generosity to others, was also not very nice to his children and his wife. The author Erica Wagner, in her 2017 book, Chief Engineer, Washington Roebling, The Man Who Built the Brooklyn Bridge, paints a pretty complicated portrait of John Roebling. She includes several passages from an 1893 biography of John that was written by Washington, including one in which Washington writes, quote, I have debated with myself whether it is proper for me to put into writing or allude in any way to the dark side of my father's character. And later, his domestic life can be summed up in a few words, domineering tyranny only varied by outbursts of uncontrollable ferocity. His wife and children stood in constant fear of him and trembled in his presence. There seems to have been a kind of public and private split in his personality. Now, as you mentioned, uh, the family moved to Trenton, New Jersey in 1849, when Washington was 12 and his father's wire rope business was really growing. He attended the Trenton Academy and he visited work sites with his dad, um, including that bridge at Niagara Falls. You could say he really learned the ropes. From dad. <laughs> the, the wire ropes. <laughs> the wire that. ropes, yes. Did Washington attend college, or was this like on-the-job training? Oh, you no. Know, in, in 1854, when he was 17 years old, he moved up to Troy, New York, to attend the Rensselaer Institute, uh, now known as RPI, the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, um, which is a fine place uh, to learn engineering back then and, of course, still today. And according to Washington's own writing, however, he worked very hard, uh, past midnight every night, never with enough food, cramming in lectures, sweating it out. <laughs> All work, no play, no, uh, no video games. No. <laughs> Imagine how good he would have been at Minecraft, though. <laughs> <laughs> he was like made for Minecraft. But no, he had no games, and that's why he graduated when he was like 19 years old oh, um, okay. and, and got out of Efficient. there. Yes. Was, and then worked for his father's business and was sent to Pittsburgh to work on uh, that city's suspension bridge over the Allegheny River, which was completed in, in 1859. But then soon after, things really took a turn for Washington when in April of 1861, he enlisted with the National Guard of Trenton to serve in the Civil War, right at the beginning of the war. And his skills, you know, in engineering and bridge building were put to use for the Union Army. I mean, he actually worked on suspension bridges and bridge logistics during the war. But he also fought in several battles. Yes, many, including the second Bull Run, 
Antietam and, and notably Gettysburg in July of 1863, where Washington fought alongside Brigadier General Gouverneur Warren. And Washington fought valiantly and by the end of the war had been made a colonel, which was a, a title that he would use for the rest of his life. Yeah, actually, in news reports of the day, when you're reading about him, it's always Colonel Roebling. Unlike, not to give him shade, but unlike Commodore Vanderbilt, Colonel Roebling was an actual military title that he earned. Yes, it was official. And actually, while he was still serving in the war, on February 22nd, 1864, Washington attended a ball a social event that was intended mm -hmm. to lift the spirits of, of the men serving. And days later, he described the event to his sister Elvira in a letter. He listed off some of the women who attended the ball, adding, quote, Last but not least was Miss Emily Warren, sister of the general, who came specially from West Point to attend the ball. It was the first time I ever saw her, and I am very much of the opinion that she has captured your brother Washi's heart at last. <laughs> Washi. That was his other nickname. It was it was it was Colonel and then it was Washi. <laughs> Colonel Washi. Colonel Washi. And Emily and Washington got engaged, but the war dragged on and other things happened. Washington's mother grew sick that year in 1864 and died at the age of only 48. Now, following the war and their marriage, Washington went back to working for his father, spending a couple of years in Cincinnati, where he oversaw the construction of that impressive suspension bridge that you mentioned, the one that stretches over the Ohio River. And then Washington and Emily were sent on a honeymoon, a honeymoon slash engineering reconnaissance tour of Europe uh, to study the, the latest engineering marvels and construction projects over there. Um, and they visited iron and steel making factories, and they, they studied bridges in London and spent a week in Paris where they visited the Universal Exposition. And the whole time, you know, of course, Washington was taking down notes and sketching out diagrams jotting insights and ideas, including studying caissons, which were a new technology. They're the underwater chambers that are used for digging foundations for bridges. And a technology that he was eager to use back home on their upcoming new projects. Exactly, yes. And so when they returned to the U.S. then in 1868, they headed for Brooklyn, where they established a home for themselves on Hicks Street in today's Brooklyn Heights. And he and his father continued preparing for construction when, in July 1869, as you mentioned, John was critically injured on the Brooklyn ferry slip and died soon after. And so it's at this moment that Washington became the chief engineer of the East River Bridge. Yes, he was immediately voted in by the, the bridge's board of directors. And one of the most important aspects of the bridge's construction um, laying there before him was how to sink its foundations on the bottom, the very bottom of the East River. I mean, you can't build a bridge without solid foundations, mm -hmm. um, which brings us back to those caissons that he had been studying during their, their European trip. A caisson is sort of a box mm -hmm. that sits upside down on the bottom of the river. 
and which is filled with pressurized air so that the men can work inside of it and dig the bridge's foundations. Yeah, the, the box or this, this chamber is connected to the fresh air above by long shafts and airlocks and things, right? So that workers could lower themselves down into this large pressurized caisson. Mm-hmm. And it is a box without a bottom because the men down there were scooping out the dirt and the materials and the rocks beneath them in order to continue going deeper down and in order to hit the bottom of the river. For the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, the caissons were very large, about 170 feet by 100 feet, okay? I mean, that's 170 Mm. feet. That's that's like as long as as a 17-story building, okay? Wow. Huge. And as that caisson, this box, dug deeper... At the same time, the bridge's massive foundations would be constructed on top of it, directly over it. So the caisson was sinking lower and lower. Until they hit rock bottom, at which point the men stopped working inside the caisson and the air would be depressurized so that those foundations above would simply crush down upon the caissons. And now, voila, you've got the bases of the bridge of these you know massive towers sitting on the bottom of the river but that whole time right as the caisson was going deeper and deeper the air pressure needed to be increased as well in order to keep the water around it from crushing in the walls but if that pressure was off and it was difficult to get it exactly right um, because this was all new technology mm-hmm. the men inside were really at risk of becoming sick with a new condition called caisson's disease, or as it was called, the bends at the time, which was caused, we now know, by nitrogen bubbles that were being formed in the bloodstream. But none of that was known at the time. And so on March 19th, 1870, the first caisson was lowered on the Brooklyn side. This just all sounds so dangerous, right? Because it was so new Mm -hmm. and so little was known about this very new process. I'm sure there were many accidents. Plenty of them. Once Washington was working inside the caisson when a supply door was left open and air just began to escape and water started entering the caisson, which caused great panic for several minutes until the problem was discovered. And there were many other instances, including fires inside the caissons. This is all very nightmarish, you know, especially considering that it was all under candlelight and lantern light in order to even see anything. Yeah, and and Washington himself spent long days down inside the caisson, working aside the men who were digging the foundations. He could sense firsthand the dangers. Um, he felt them himself. He, he wrote about experiencing, quote, that particular numb feeling in the small of the back and lower limbs, which precede paralysis. But work continued. And finally, after a year's digging in March 1871, the Brooklyn Caisson had reached the bottom. And it was filled in. And months later, they started on the New York side. Unfortunately, the New York caisson needed to be dug even deeper than the Brooklyn side. Which would mean the air pressure would need to be even higher. And which caused even more discomfort for the men working below. And the public was aware of this. The stories of men getting sick with the bends were increasing. And 
Even as the New York Quezon hit the bottom of the riverbed in April of 1872, Washington was not immune from this illness. Erica Wagner, in Chief Engineer, writes that Washington had been sickened several times that spring and was, quote, brought up out of the New York Quezon nearly insensible, and all night his death was hourly expected. He wrote in a letter to his brother Ferdinand, who was back running the family business in Trenton, that, quote, I have been quite sick for some days, owing to imprudence in remaining too long in the caisson on Saturday last. Saturday night, the pains were so intense that I thought I would not get over it. Over the next several months, Washington would find it increasingly difficult to talk, and to write, or to even visit the work site. But work on the bridge continued, thanks to the remarkable Emily Warren Roebling. We'll get to her side of the story after this. Construction on the Brooklyn Bridge here was proceeding apace, and Washington could have leaned heavily upon other foremen or assistants that he had. He could have fished around for another young, competent engineer to assist in the completion of the Brooklyn Bridge. Other men who were involved with the bridge. But he didn't want to. He didn't want to relinquish control of the bridge. He was physically weakened, but was very much in his mental faculties. Thus, there was only one person with the intellect and the bravery and the access to step up in a leading role. And that was his wife, Emily. And to understand why, we need to turn back the clock to look at her story. The story of Emily Warren Roebling, back before she was a Roebling. Just a Warren. Emily Warren was born into a huge family on September 23rd, 1843 in Cold Spring, New York, a beautiful village on the Hudson River. Beautiful today. Yes. And right across the river from West Point Military Academy. The Warrens were well-off, well-connected, and progressive at least in the sense that they believed a girl in the mid-19th century should benefit from an education. In 1859, she was sent to Georgetown Visitation to study in Washington, D.C., partially thanks to her much older brother, Governor K. Warren, who even offered to fund her education himself. Come on, Greg, put some respect on that name. That's, that's Brigadier General Governor Warren. Ah, but... After Warren fought alongside Washington Roebling at Gettysburg, he became a major general after fighting in that battle. He had an extraordinary military resume. And it was during that soldier's ball that you described earlier that Washington met and promptly fell in love with the major general's younger sister, Emily. And less than a year later, on January 18, 1865, they were married in a ceremony here at Cold Spring, New York. You know, I think it's important to note, by the way, that these two very important men in her life, her husband and her brother, 
were not only war veterans, but had really seen and participated in some truly brutal action Mm -hmm. in that war. But things never stop for the Roeblings here. Immediately after the war, 1865, Washington joined John on working at the Cincinnati Covington Bridge, and Emily would join him in Covington. And that bridge opened on December 1st, 1866. And just four months later, New York approved the construction of the East River Bridge. Um, That was the commission that was then received by Emily's father-in-law, John. But they did not go to New York and simply settle for that project because instead they took that long trip to Europe, that that reconnaissance honeymoon, <laughs> yeah. uh, to you know, to, re- Working to research honeymoon. Ex- yes, to research examples of bridges and other infrastructure. But one key factor and a, n- a new piece of information to that anecdote: Emily was pregnant. In fact, their son, John A. Roving II, was born in November in Mulhausen, the town in which John A. Roving Sr. had been born. What timing! They mm-hmm. had that all lined up well. And, but also, I mean, seriously, talk about a physical burden trekking through Europe at the time on all those trains and ships and carriages while pregnant. Why did Emily go to Europe at all? I mean, you, you could see an option where she stayed behind, right? She didn't have to be with her husband. But I think this is where we see who Emily wanted to be. She didn't want to be left behind. She wanted to be by her husband's side. And Washington wanted her there. They took this fact-finding mission through Europe as a dual quest. She wanted to be active in her husband's life and success and was fascinated by their discoveries. I think it's key to see them as a partnership through which she could explore her own intellectual curiosity, despite the limited opportunities that were offered in this period to women who were not with men. She would do anything to assist her husband's success, and being by his side, she could do anything. But they were back by 1868, and the following year... They were living in Brooklyn, uh, Hicks Street in Brooklyn Heights. And as we know, following these accidents, John died in 1869. And by the spring of 1872, Washington was in horrible pain due to decompression sickness, which would paralyze his limbs and, and leave him bedridden. But as we suggested earlier, did not leave him mentally incapacitated. Mm-hmm. The next May in 1873, as the Brooklyn Anchorages were under construction, he and Emily sailed again for Europe, hoping that the spas and water cures which awaited them would help ease his pain. But the the journey proved ineffective. This ultimately didn't work. Instead, he was in more pain than ever. He couldn't return to the construction site. But he knew it was too important. It was too massive to simply delegate work to others. It required the oversight specifically of a Roebling. But it wasn't always Washington taking charge. Are you saying that Emily became the project's chief engineer? That's a bit of an overstatement and a sentiment derived from press reports of the day. A New York Times article published when the bridge opened in 1883 
quotes an anonymous gentleman in saying, quote, Mrs. Roebling has filled Washington's position as chief of the engineering staff, unquote. What she actually stepped up to do, in my opinion, is greater than the legend which has formed around her. She operated within a professional world of men, a liaison with politicians, engineers, laborers, and journalists, communicating her husband's wishes and sometimes collaborating in those decisions and presumably making her own decisions on the spot. Well, Washington, after all, was still in the picture. He was still working. By this time, they had actually moved to a townhouse on Columbia Heights. And that's where Washington was most of the time. It was here he could observe the bridge's progress from afar. Emily was doing all the correspondence, making appearances, collecting press notices about the bridge. In the year 1880, she even led trustees and the mayors of Brooklyn and New York along the bridge as it neared completion. Just an extraordinary sight, as there were no other people on the bridge, you know, for instance, wearing a dress. Mm-hmm. At the tower on the New York side, someone actually pulled out a bottle of champagne, and they all raised a toast to her health. Wow. I mean, you sense a real deference by the men to Mrs. Roblin here in these press reports. Never any disrespect. No. She, she did not take beef from any contractor or laborer who looked down upon her as a woman. But to assume that she took over the project while her husband lay in bed is, I think, applying a cold ambition that was not really in keeping with her personality or in her relationship with Washington. And uh, keep in mind, I mean, she performed all of those duties that you just mentioned while she was also raising a child and caring for a sick husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, she even successfully championed her husband at a very fraught moment in the year 1882, when he was almost removed from the project entirely, you know, I mean, it had been, right. been a while since anyone had actually seen him, as Washington himself would later write, quote, her services as amanuensis became invaluable to me. And this led to other duties in the way of interviewing people, avoiding personal friction by her tact, smoothing over difficulties which were naturally inherent in work, sometimes political, in his conduct. It's quite possible that there may not have even been a Brooklyn Bridge without Emily Warren Roebling. You know, at least one that opened in 1883. Washington would, though, eventually venture out to look at his work, even under the fear that a glimpse of his weakness would jeopardize his position. Author Jeffrey Richmond, in his well-researched book on the Brooklyn Bridge, recounts a time a month before the bridge opened in April of 1883 when Washington went to inspect the Brooklyn Rail Terminal. Quote, he rode in a carriage with assistant engineer George McNulty, who was supervising the work at the Brooklyn Terminal, to see its progress. Nevertheless, Washington never got out of the carriage to take a closer look. One can only guess how he felt upon seeing his bridge so close to completion from the carriage after he had devoted so much of his life and health to it, unquote. And finally, the bridge would open on May 24th, 1883, 
With a magnificent and flamboyant celebration, the largest party New York City had ever seen. The Brooklyn Bridge was now the longest and tallest suspension bridge in the world. And given the honor of being the first person to cross the bridge by carriage was Emily Roebling, carrying a rooster, a symbol of victory over night and over great adversity. Washington was not there, although there was a reception at Emily and Washington's home that evening at their townhouse on Columbia Heights for VIPs, including the President of the United States, Chester A. Arthur. According to David McCullough's book, The Great Bridge, quote, there were busts of both the chief engineer and his father standing on one drawing room mantle. On the elder Roebling's white marble head, Emily had placed a wreath of immortelles, while the one on her husband's wore a laurel wreath decorated with tiny American flags and a white satin ribbon on which she had printed in red and blue, Chief Engineer Washington A. Roebling, May 24th, 1883. Let him who has won it bear the palm. Now, after the bridge was completed, the Roeblings moved from Brooklyn and moved back to Trenton, New Jersey, near the site of the family's wire rope empire. And would Washington continue to work as a bridge engineer? Technically, no, although he would continue to be involved in the construction of bridges in some way for decades to come. In fact, he oversaw the production of cables for the Williamsburg Bridge, Mm. which opened in 1903 and which also connected Manhattan with Brooklyn and even consulted with engineers on planning the cable for the George Washington Bridge decades later. And Emily? Emily became widely involved in several social organizations, including the Daughters of the American Revolution and the Women's Club Cirrhosis. Remarkably, she also got a certificate of law from NYU Law School. An essay she wrote was read at the graduation ceremony, advocating for women's suffrage and increased property rights. One can only imagine the impact that she could have had as a spokesperson for the women's right to vote which was finally achieved nationwide with the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. But sadly, she did not live to see it. Emily Warren Roebling died on February 28, 1903, of stomach cancer at age 59. Washington Roebling would remarry five years later, in 1908, to Cornelia Farrow of Charleston, South Carolina, And from their Victorian mansion on West State Street in Trenton, Washington would keep busy with his notable rock and mineral collection and even would operate a mineral museum out of his home. Tragedy struck the Roebling family again in 1912 when the son of Washington's brother Charles, named Washington Roebling II, died in the sinking of the Titanic. But Washington Roebling I continued on through World War I into the Roaring Twenties, and in 1921, at age 84, with nobody in the family alive or interested in taking over the family business, Washington once again resumed control. 
and it was a position that he kept until his death five years later, on July 21st, 1926, at age 89. John A. Roebling and Sons would continue to produce wire rope from their Trenton factory and provide cables to many of the country's most notable bridges. The George Washington Bridge opened in 1931 with a record-breaking span of 3,500 feet and cables produced by Roebling and Sons. Six years later, that record was broken by the Golden Gate Bridge, which opened in San Francisco with a span of 4,200 feet and cables produced by John A. Roebling and Sons. But of course, there would only ever be one Brooklyn Bridge, and Emily Warren Roebling's role in its construction would get more attention over the years. That plaque that I read from the beginning of the show, placed on the bridge in 1951, contained all three of their names, John, Washington, and Emily, and concludes, quote, back of every great work, we can find the self-sacrificing devotion of a woman. Emily didn't receive an obituary in the New York Times at the time of her death in 1903, although the Brooklyn Daily Eagle published a very large tribute. However, she did receive a Times obituary 115 years after her death as part of the paper's overlooked feature in 2018. And that same year, 2018, in Brooklyn Heights, one block along Columbia Heights was renamed Emily Warren Roebling Way. The block where the Roeblings lived, where Washington lay bedridden, his eyes gazing towards the East River, and where Emily pushed the bridge to completion. The John A. Roebling and Sons Company continued operating in Trenton and in their nearby manufacturing town of Roebling, New Jersey, for decades, directed by four generations of Roeblings. In 1953, the family sold the plants to the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, which operated them for 20 years before closing them in 1973 and 1974. But the Roebling family is still around and in New York. Yes, that's right, because we are now joined in the studio by an actual Roebling. Chris Roebling, a a New Yorker musician, artist, and the great-great-grandson of Washington and Emily Roebling. And Chris also leads the Brooklyn Bridge History Tour for Bowery Boys Walks with very special insights. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you very much. So, so Chris, this is a, a bit of a Bowery Boys first for us here. Okay, We've just spent quite a bit of time talking about your ancestors. Tom just mentioned that you're the great-great-grandson of Washington and Emily. Could you just walk through your family tree a little bit more specifically starting with them washington and emily had one kid whose name was john the second named after his grandfather obviously and they stopped at one but then john the second had three kids of which only one had any progeny and that was my grandfather whose Mm -hmm. name was siegfried uh siegfried only had one son who only had me (laughs) so (laughs) it was uh lots of one kid one kid one kid one kid yeah, I'm I'm curious, just pulling back here, how how did the bridge actually factor into your childhood? 
was it talked about at the time? Did you talk um, about it around the table? I mean, I, I, I think for the most part, I think it's safe to say I had a somewhat a life that that wasn't like the epicenter of, thank mm-hmm. God. My, my parents were both artists, and that was more the center of our lives than anything. But it certainly was. Uh, it filled my nights with some great stories. At the dinner table, you're absolutely right. I, I think that I was regaled by my parents very oftentimes during dinner. And uh, yeah, so I learned a lot about the bridge through, and, and the family in general, through through sitting around and eating and talking. <laughs> <laughs> and walking over the bridge, you were in New yeah. York? Or yeah, well, I've, I've, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was born and raised in New York. So, so seeing the bridge has never really been a very... Yeah, you know, special thing for me just because I've seen it my whole life all all the time. So like everybody has. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. But it just seems. Like... I honestly, I don't think about it really. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. for the most mm-hmm. part, I think it's once in a blue moon I'll be walking across it and think, oh yeah, right. So, <laughs> you know, some connection there. So they were talking about it. Were you? Did you have to fact check the story? Or did you have to do a lot of research on your own? No, not uh, none actually. And and you know now now that I've been doing these walks, uh, these Bowery Boys walks, which have been so fun to do, you know that's kind of in a way been the focus of them, which is it, it which is more about the subjective element of family history, how families will sort of frame things in ways that have to do with their sense of themselves and their their legacies. And so I actually make a point of sort of keeping in. The subjective element. I've I've had the good fortune of sort of bouncing the story I learned, the way I learned it, off a, a profound historian named Clifford Zink, who was nice enough many, many, many years ago to make distinctions for me between things that he knew for a fact were the case versus things that he was hearing for the first time out of my mouth. <laughs> so, and, and and I remember at the time him being kind enough to say, you know, just because I haven't heard that doesn't mean that that's not true. It just means it's not in some source that I can you know find in the the Rutgers archives or whatever, you know. So can you, can you give us any examples of that? You know, the fact that, for example, John II uh, and, and the whole family at that point in time were, were quite obsessed by seances. Mm. And so there, there was a lot of seancing going on at, at that point in time. Uh, they had a person that worked there in their house who, who suffered uh, eventually from overwhelming schizophrenia. And, and at that point in time, for you to go to a award for something like that was horrible. It was like a death sentence. And so because they loved this person who had been working for them for so long, they kind of set up the attic for them. And they lived out their lives apparently very happily in their house, in, in a sort of a, an mm-hmm. assigned room in the, in the house. But the story went that after this person passed away, that the chair that they were always in up there would rock all the time, <laughs> whether and and that they would they would contact this person through uh, through seances sometimes. And, so those are the kinds of stories you were hearing around the table. That is so cool. <laughs> well, that's one of them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, have you been in a seance? I was about to actually. Ask. We're joined now by John Roblin. <laughs> now you just said that you know when you cross the bridge, you know you take it in like any New Yorker mm. might take in the bridge. Yet you have this connection to it. And I know from walking the bridge with you in the past that you also carry with you some special artifacts. I try. Yeah. You know, I mean, why should I why am I doing this at all if if it's if it's not to take advantage of what I can bring to the situation that makes it sort of unique? Yeah. So uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about like what you bring in that sort of special sack of yours? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, magical well sack? yeah, yes. it, the, the, the mag- first of all, the magical sack changes on a, on a daily basis. Like I don't just sort of have a, a set prescribed, although some things are almost always in there. Mm-hmm. But uh, wait, did you bring something? I brought, here? Yeah, I brought something. Just oh, to, you oh, know. Hold I mean, on. unfortunately, 
There's no camera. No, on these but mics, we can talk about it. Wait, sure. wait, hold oh, on. Do you, see, I, you thought I just brought a suit for later in here. <laughs> yeah, Chris. Chris arrived in the studio here with a black bag that I thought was a suit, like a what well, is like a garment bag. A garment yeah, bag, and it is. That's exactly what it is. But honestly, I thought maybe you just swung by the dry cleaner. Yeah, He's it, unzipping it here. Yeah, here we go. Oh, holy cow, Greg! Chris has just pulled out a wow. framed, oh a giant framed collection of drafting yes. utensils drafting yes. tools it's everything that john used to make the uh the blueprints for the brooklyn bridge it's it's all of his drafting equipment uh he didn't have multiples of these he had only these and they were placed in a leather pouch that he kept on his person apparently day and night including sleeping with these things and the the story as i was told it went was that very oftentimes unfortunately at dinner he would suddenly, his eyes would widen and he'd, he'd have an idea. He'd stand up from the dinner table and say, excuse me, I must be excused. Go to the other room, pull this leather pouch out of his pocket, open it up. And these items here would, would be there and he would take them out and he would start working on some sort of uh, invention or something he was wanted to patent or also in this case, the Brooklyn Bridge. These were the, these were the drafting utensils that he used to make the, the blueprints for the Brooklyn Bridge. So these are the actual drafting mm. tools that he used. His let's For, see, what do we have? Uh, like a compass? I don't know the names of these instruments I'm looking at here. They're I'm, all I metallic. Wish I could say I did. There's there's pens. There's the uh, the compass. Uh, compass uh, compasses of different kinds. Yeah. yeah, several compasses. And, yeah, and, and uh, of course everyone, you know, everyone, when you're at school, you think the compasses are just made to make circles and arcs, but obviously they're really made to make really accurate angles on on lines, and and so, uh, or that's what they're most often used for. This was taken out of the leather pouch and put into this by John II. John's grandson, Washington's son. Washington's son, right. And these are John's tools, not Washington's tools. For the original bridge. And probably, and who knows, maybe other bridges as well yeah, that, we've, yeah, sure. that we talked about in the show. Maybe the Cincinnati Covington and the Niagara Bridge, maybe? Who Apparently, knows? he was not into uh, having like, oh, look, here's all my different types for these different, like, he, he kept it very basic and that, that this pretty much is what he had. Have you ever been up to the Delaware Bridge? You know where the the D and H Canal yes, bridge is up there. Yes, yes, I have, and and I've I've also been to uh, one or two that are that are like uh, derelicts that are that are oh. that are really hard. Like you have to go bushwhacking to get to them, and they're sort of like <laughs> falling down. And they're pretty neat though. And I was also this was really cool. I was I I went to an architect who I know was nice enough to he was working on this person's house, this crazy house in Greenwich, Connecticut that has in its backyard a rolling suspension bridge that was made just for them Whoa. <laughs> so that so that they could get to their yachts or whatever and, and it was <laughs> and and to the best of my knowledge it's the only private <laughs> rolling bridge that anyone has anywhere. This, wow. this place was, and it still stands. It it has a it I mean this is just an aside but it also has a a, a dance floor that then drops down to become a pool, and as it drops down, all this water floods in. Oh, so the dance floor uh, suddenly becomes a swimming. A, 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 <laughs> so, a dance, a dance floor. Yeah, it was like it's it's like a, a big open bridge. space. No, no, in in this part, same same, oh, house, same house though. Gotcha, same house. Yeah, gotcha. I just I just wow. I know it's just an, that's just an aside, but uh. wow. And by the way, have you been to Saxonburg? Oh, of course. Oh yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, definitely. Because I guess your family name is all over that as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. That we we went there not that long ago for um, an anniversary. But it had to do with when he finally figured out how to tent properly tension mm. uh, metal cables so that you know it worked. Mm -hmm. So it was it said it was useful. Oh right, that was sort of where it was all. Yeah, he had to, where it happened. Yeah, right, but right next to the field that he was trying to work, which was useless because <laughs> it was all clay and rocks and all that. Mm -hmm. 
our focus is the Brooklyn Bridge today, but when you think about those wire ropes, they're everywhere. They're in many landmarks, mm-hmm. right? They're, many they're bridges. Many bridges, in fact. Many bridges in New York, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. The, the Otis elevators, the, uh, you know. The elevators, right. The, the things that operate the flaps on the Wright Brothers airplanes, mm-hmm. the, uh, Mm-hmm. The slinky, which I the slinky. Yeah. Okay, I wanted to get. I, I this popped. I, I I wanted to ask you about this. Greg's been John, excited about this. So the John A. Roebling and Sons factory manufactured yeah. slinkies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For the toy company, like yeah, were, they, okay. they, it wasn't their idea. Yeah, it wasn't right. like John, John did not. Draft John was like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a toss up for him. <laughs> what, what, whether he's going to spend his time on bridges or slinkies. <laughs> Look, for a while there, Slinkies <laughs> was... Hot. There was the heat was with Slinkies. I, I love my Slinkies. <laughs> I mean, now they're made of plastic. Now they're made of plastic. Very just. Oh, man. But um, they, they were for years. Yeah. Produced what? In yeah. Trenton? Yeah. They're, uh, either Trenton or Roebling. Roebling, mm. which is the town that they made just south of Trenton. They, they made like a town basically from scratch for them because they were spilling out beyond Trenton. And so they, they, uh, they might have made them there. I'm not sure. I read a lot of correspondence between Washington and John mm. where where Washington is trying to encourage John to get into the family business. Yeah. Right? To, yeah. to come over to, to lead the company because he was getting into his 80s. Washington right. was, right? He was, and yeah. And he's still the leader of the company. Was there in subsequent generations yeah. this feeling that well, somebody was should for my come dad. back? There my, was. There, oh, the, my dad had just unreal pressure. Tell us about your dad. Yeah, my, my dad's name was Paul, and my grandmother, Mary Roebling, was a, a very business-minded person and a very ambitious person. She was the first female president of a bank. Compliments of, of her husband, Siegfried, dying and her taking it over and doing incredibly, incredibly well with it. So she was known as sort of this, this guru of, of finance at that point in time. She was the first lady to have a to run the American Stock Exchange. She had the chair mm-hmm. on the American Stock Exchange. And then Incredible. when my grandfather, Siegfried, died, uh, he died when my dad was only, I believe, a year and a half old. So my dad never really knew his father. She had great aspirations for my dad to be sort of groomed to be the one that would take over rolling wire and steel. Mm-hmm. And to the point that and this she, is, I'm sorry, like 1950s? Yes. Um, and and she, she had this whole, kind of like very, very detailed concept of what she felt his life had to play out. And, and she wanted a, 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 a stunning amount of control of how he was going to live his life and what he was going to, you know, when he was going to have his first significant relationship. He was going to have to be a cadet. He was going to have to I mean, like you name it, she had she has sort of had this this way that his life was supposed to play out that she was just sort of grooming him towards so that he could eventually take over this company. And unfortunately for her, he stumbled across acting and uh, and fell in love with uh, two people, two amazing artists and teachers in the village at that point in time called uh, Uta Hagen and Herbert Berghoff. HB Studio is still there on mm-hmm. Bank Street now. Sure. And you know he was this passionate socialist and and uh they really did you know a- acting for art's sake and it it just you know that was it my dad was a goner after that and so there was nothing that was going to uh change the course of his life after that. I mean, you know my my dad and mom spent their lives on you know in the theater 
and in movies, and that was that was it. That's how they made a living, and that's what they that's what they did with their lives. But when when it and an accomplished career. Oh yeah, very much. Oh yeah, no, they were both very successful. They they were on Broadway at a time when there were so many more theaters. Mm-hmm. You know, when one thing was closing, you'd already start setting up the deals and the agreements for the rehearsal, rehearsing the next project. So you just kind of kept parlaying one one performance into another. And so my parents were in a lot of big hits on Broadway. And and when when my grandmother saw the writing on the wall about this, she was. She was not, especially at that point in time when McCarthyism was sort of planting the seed that uh if you were an actor, you were card-carrying communist, all uh this sort of stuff. And and so she, uh, amongst other things, she she made some calls so that that he would go into the military very quickly, like that, so that it would sort of like speed up, expedite his process of training and all that and just get him into uh, some sort of military service as quickly as possible, which my dad insisted was not going to happen. And so he wound up having to spend three weeks in an asylum and had to have himself certified as wow. unhinged, basically, so that, to, so that, he, to get so that he wouldn't be forced into that. And, uh, you know, but but at that point in time, he had also just landed the part in The Dark is Light Enough, which was a play with Tyrone Power and Catherine Cornell as the junior lead. You know, he was... On Broadway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they were two of the biggest stars in theater at that point in time. So, and he got great reviews and that was that. I guess if you were unhinged, you could still be on Broadway. Right, you could still be on Broadway. (laughs) You had to be unhinged. (laughs) So, your father has this amazing career and your mother too um, in New York theater. Does that then signify pretty much a break? Oh, yes. With the Yes, yes, absolutely. Enterprise? Yes. I I was raised around actors. (laughs) And artists in general. I mean, every once in a while, we'd have to, you know, we'd go to something that was more about getting pulled back. Into, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think my dad always wanted, he, he, he always had a very strong desire for his mom to get who he was and why he wanted to do with his life. And it just sort of, it never really quite worked out that way. Now, I happen to know from a prior conversation that you used to live beneath the Brooklyn Bridge, right? You lived over in Dumbo. Yes, for, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, very, wh- very close to Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right, right yeah. Uh, around that area. But Dumbo, I guess I'm just t- t- doing a tangent here because I want to hear what was Dumbo like? So this was in the 80s? Yeah, I, I a friend of mine moved to um, Front Street in Dumbo in 1982. And so we started hanging out there at that point in time. And at that point in time, you could spend Saturday night, you know, the, in Dumbo and not see a single human being, which is just very strange to be really, you know, you're looking right there and there's the city, you know, so it's not like you're that far away from where, you know, the party's going on <laughs> and, and still it was, it was just surreal. And so we used to take advantage of that. We used to spend a lot of our time because most of those warehouses at that point in time were um, either underutilized or abandoned. And so we would use the fact that the area wasn't very crowded to explore them all. And we would make these huge firework displays that would go on for 10 minutes <laughs> at the intersection of Front and J Street, which now the thought of, <laughs> of, a, of a 10 minute firework display going on at the intersection of Front and J. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, but back then we were always like, wow, no one's here. So what are we what are we going to do to, you know, how can we take advantage of that? Well, what else are you up to now you, uh, on top of leading this tour, of course? Yeah. And other than that, I, I've been producing music since I was uh, very, very young. And uh, I have uh, been lucky enough to have some things uh, released commercially. I've been in a band recently that's been doing very well that has Ben Stiller in it. <laughs> and, oh. 
that does very odd, very odd music. You would think that uh, maybe it would be something different, but it's not. Ben is actually very, very creative and, and comes up with some Kind of really experimental cool even? Yes, very, yeah. very hold, much so. Hold on a second here. You, so this, there are a lot of bold-faced names in this show. We've got Washington, <laughs> John, Chris, and now Ben. Slinky. So are you hitting Slinky? You and Ben are friends? Oh, we've been since we were... What, what happened was years and years and years ago, and specifically in 1981, we recorded an album uh, that was fully avant-garde. I mean, fully. Like, there's one section that's like five minutes of breathing, and then it goes into this weird buzzing stuff. And it's, yes. it's, 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 I, I like it, but, and, and they, uh, <laughs> that was in New York, I think. That, that was in New York, yes. And, and we, we put together this, this thing. Um, unfortunately, our friends were all really like into more commercial music at the time. So it was not loved. It wasn't all that well received by our, mm-hmm. our friends. And so we, we sold a few back at the back at that point in time when you could sell things on consignment to mm-hmm. record stores. So we, we sold a few hundred to record stores and then sort of forgot about it. And I went on to work in lots of pro- I can I continued with music for the whole rest of my life. And everyone else went. The, the bassist from that band went on to become one of the uh, one of the more prominent judges in the state of Arizona. Uh, the, the other uh, the other person teaches Central European literature, and then Ben went on to make movies. <laughs> and uh <laughs> but the funny thing was that years later this person who has gone on to become a very well-known and respected uh well a he runs a record label that's been doing very well for himself and he's also known for his his taste in arcana and obscure music when he was still uh, for a living appraising uh record collections for estates he was uh, asked to appraise a record collection of a person who had recently died and uh, he was given the opportunity to afterwards as a i guess as a gratuity to take anything from the collection that he that you know that he wanted and he saw our album amongst this person's stuff and said oh i i haven't even heard this but i know i'm going to like this and we didn't have our full names on it we didn't have so you couldn't tell from from the, the names on it who we were right and apparently the, the the way he told it to me he he went back and listened to it and it was just like this revelation for him so for for whatever reason he thought the album was just brilliant i think he's nuts but (laughs) (laughs) no but he's a record producer what is his name uh his name is mike sniper and he runs a a label called captured tracks records Mm -hmm. uh and and so he uh he decided he vowed at that point in time uh, the way it was told to me by him back then was that he at that point in time he decided that he was going to start up a label someday and he wanted his first thing when he did start up a label to be this album and then he proceeded to spend 15 years trying to find us and and figure out exactly who we were and 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 uh and so i i did a so 15 years later he had i guess gotten some some interns on the job of trying to locate who who we were and where we it just had your first names yeah. like Chris yeah and, and, ben and i think at that point he he ben got more famous and it was something like b stiller or something like that and so mm. he he was like well maybe that's ben so but he wasn't certain right i can only and, hear breathing right. i don't really know <laughs> right, right. and and so what he uh what what he did was he he got his interns to do some research and i had uh, had just done an interview with jim dwyer uh, you know, he used to do mm-hmm. the Metropolitan section of the Times right, ab- yeah. about the about the white flags when they got put up on the bridge. And in it, I mentioned that I had just done an app about the Brooklyn Bridge. And so this intern making a, a, a connection and thinking, we're rolling, rolling, went to the app, which was still available at that point in time, and left a message 
that said, uh, "Did you do you by any chance have anything to do with something called Roadkill, which was the name of this album that we had done way back when?" And so I thought, "Oh God!" So I I said, "Yeah," and he was like, "Oh my God! Oh my God! You have to." <laughs> Stay there, don't. And 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 he was like, "I have to. You have to come to to our our label. You have to come to." Our, and, and I said, "Okay." And I I was thinking, "Okay, I'm gonna go to this place. It's gonna be like someone still living at home, and the basement's been turned into a label or something like that." But instead, I I, I show up at this this beautiful modified factory that's been turned into this this really cool record label that specializes in releasing things in vinyl. And I walk in, and like everyone's like absolutely excited to see me, and I, I was like. It's surreal. Yeah, and so we and and then they've been nice enough to to give us a budget to record new material, and so we're we're we are now continuing on as a as a band nowadays. So it's, can where can people find this music? Are you um, on you can, yeah, Spotify? You, yeah, Spotify. Sure. Uh, there's the album Roadkill, which is this thing we did when we were 15 years old, which is nothing but clicks and beeps and breathing. And, I'm sorry. The name of the band? <laughs> it was called Capital Punishment because at the time Gary Gilmore was in the news, mm-hmm. remember the fellow who basically sentenced himself to death and like and and convinced yeah. uh-huh. con- like they didn't even want to kill him and he was like, No, 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 kill him. Right. So we thought it was very topical and so we thought, well let's you let's Capital call punishment. Yes. Roadkill. Road yeah. <laughs> and, and but then you have more recently. Yeah, well, and then recently we did an album called This Is Capital Punishment. <laughs> and and we're hopefully working on uh, on more stuff. We've been we've been given uh open ended use of Abbey Road in, in London for apparently something like 10 days or and and so is that all yeah (laughs) i mean can you imagine what your life would have been like if you're like if your father if your parents hadn't made this sacrifice to go and pursue their own dreams and put you in a situation where you got to find all these opportunities They, they both came they both came from um childhoods that were not very understanding mm-hmm. of uh certainly on my dad's side there wasn't really a sense that that was a very legitimate way to live one's life and my mom her parents are incredibly wonderful people but they were they ran a tavern in south milwaukee and 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 so the idea of going to new york even was just like crazy talk to them let alone going mm-hmm. into acting you know so uh so they they both kind of escaped the gravitational field of their of their families and their childhoods you know <laughs> well well thank you so much for all of your insights here um for taking us on these many different strands of your story well ad- adding some t- real dimension and edge to this so, <laughs> to this end of the story here um i really appreciate that well chris roblane thank you so oh, much my, for my, sharing my your great story pleasure. with us wow today. thank my you yeah this pleasure. has been an honor and yeah. um you know everyone should go on one of your tours just go to barryboyswalks.com uh to find the next date and time thank you yeah. chris thank you thank you For more about the Roblings and the Brooklyn Bridge, please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll be posting some Roebling-related photos, both past and present. And there might even be a picture of Ben Stiller. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) We never get that opportunity. It it will include photos of those amazing drafting tools that Chris brought into the studio. I still can't believe that he just kind of popped those out of a garment bag. 
really proving that you really <laughs> never know what people have in their bags in New York City. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. Your small monthly support really keeps this show running, um, and we can't thank you enough for it. I mean, we try. Um, we try with our patron-only podcast called Side Streets, where we go on New York-related tangents, sometimes related to the most recent show. In last week's Side Streets that we released, Greg and I really waxed nostalgic about the the glory days, our glory days, of temping in the 1990s. Um, and we really get into some nitty-gritty nitty-gritty details mm-hmm. about, you know, things like dropping off our timesheets and typing tests and um, so much more. <laughs> so you can join the fun at patreon.com slash Boys. And you can also join us in the streets or on a bridge at BoweryBoysWalks.com. Yeah, um, you can actually book a tour with Chris or with any of our other fabulous and interesting tour guides um, who lead walks all over this wonderful city. Join a group tour or book something memorable for your family or your private group today. That's at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much for joining us on this epic journey through time with the Roebling family. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.